Yeah, I traveled uh, a long way to discover uh, my long-lost brother as part of this congregation, Peter McClellan. I don't know if Peter is here this morning, but uh, yeah, I had to travel a ways to uh, discover that. But yeah, I come from Edinburgh in Scotland, and it's been a real delight to, to be here with you guys this weekend as well. Um, just encouraged to see what's happening in this congregation, what God is doing here. Uh, it's been really exciting. What I love when I met at H uh, and Cara as well too, um, just appreciate their, their passion and their ability to not just live it out, but to communicate effectively. And I grew up in Scotland. And one of the challenges we had in Scotland was uh, finding a church that actually would have the Bible and communicate in a way where whoever spoke about the Bible really accurately relayed what was in the Bible. I would go to churches sometimes and listen to what was being said and think, do they know what's in here? <laughs> do they know what we've got? Because it didn't seem to be relayed uh, in a way that accurately reflected that. So many people I grew up with, they rejected Christianity. They said, it's a lot of nonsense. It's not relevant to me, but they'd never heard it before. And that was something that really encouraged me to get involved in ministry because I wanted people to at least hear and understand what the Bible teaches. And if they choose at that point to walk away, we can't twist arms. We can't bash people over the head with the Bible. But certainly, uh, I want people to engage with what the Bible has to say and to understand it's entirely relevant. It's very applicable. In fact, I would say it's essential uh, that people need to know what is in this book. Uh, I live in San Diego, California. Now, we moved uh, about five years ago with my wife and our three, uh, three children. So I'm married to Cheryl, and we have three kids. Sophia is nearly 15. Mariah is 13. We've got a little boy, Asher, who's seven years old. So uh, it's always sad when I travel, they can't be with me, and I meet so many wonderful people and hear stories, but I always relay to them a lot of the good things uh, that are going on in other parts of the country, which is encouraging for me. And I do love the things about this church, that even learning and listening to stories, and that this is a, it's a safe place uh, it's a place where you can come as a believer and it's a place where you can learn and you can grow. It's a place where you can come if you're not a believer and learn more about Christian things. It is a safe place. But I was thinking about this last night. Safe, there's two sides to that coin in terms of the safety of this place because it is safe, but then again, it's not a safe place. And let me explain that quickly before you run out of the room. Uh, that is that if you uh, think about the story, if you're familiar with a guy called C.S. Lewis, who wrote a number of books, including a series about this world called Narnia, a fictional series. And then one of his famous books in the series that was made into a movie called The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. At one point in this story, we see that the characters in the story are learning about this character uh, in the story called Aslan. And Aslan depicts Jesus, and Aslan is a lion. And as these kids start to learn about Aslan, and they're waiting to meet Aslan, and they hear that he's a lion, and one of the kids says, is he safe? Well, the other character says, of course he's not safe, but he's good. Of course he's not safe, but he's good. I love what we were singing there this morning. God is good. This is going to be a safe place for you. Don't get me wrong in many ways. But as you start to hear, and you will hear the word of God, sometimes you're going to feel uncomfortable. Sometimes you're going to feel challenged. But it's not because God doesn't love you. It's because he does love you. And it's a safe place because God is good. 
And so I'm so excited to hear about the, the stories, that, uh, about the people who are here and things that are happening, uh, things that are changing. What we're going to be talking about today uh, from a very well-known verse in the Bible, but if you're not familiar with it, it's a, it's a very critical one. And that is this idea that to save your life, you must trust in the truth. To save your life, you must trust in the truth. This was impressed upon me as a young boy growing up in Scotland. I grew up in Edinburgh, Scotland, the capital city, which I'm always quickly to impress upon Peter, who comes from this other small little town called Glasgow. Maybe people haven't heard of that, but it is in Scotland somewhere. But uh, I come from the capital city. We have the castle. They don't. I know he's like, oh, not the castle again, please. I was going about the castle. But um, I grew up in Edinburgh, Scotland, and my parents weren't Christians. They weren't interested in church or Christianity. And my family went down a very familiar road, which is a bit disappointing. That is, by the time I was three years old, my parents decided we'd be better off apart than together, and they got divorced. So my sister and I went to live with my mum. We moved to an area uh, of Edinburgh that was quite a rough neighbourhood. Um, a lot of broken families were moving into this neighbourhood, and so we moved in there. And my dad would come and visit us on the weekends, normally after he'd been out drinking and the pubs were closed. And as a young boy, I thought this was going to be it. This was going to be my family situation. But something dramatic happened, and that is that a neighbour invited my mum to church. And if you knew anything about my mum, she's the last person he thought would be interested. Sometimes we have a list of people that we think, you know what, I might invite someone to church, but I've got a list of these people, they would never be interested. Well, let me encourage you, my mum's name was probably top of that list, and she was invited, but on the outside, we don't know what God's doing on the inside. Don't write anybody off, please, because my mum was invited in church, and she went to church, and she heard this incredible story about a God who is good, a God who is loving, a God who is willing to forgive no matter what you've done, and he can redeem and buy back and renew you and make you a new creation. He's willing to forgive you, not based upon what you can do for him, based upon what he has done for you. He has sent Jesus, his son, into the world. And all the things that you've done that ought to separate you from a holy God, Jesus said, I'm taking it up my shoulders. I'm paying the price so that you can be forgiven, you can be restored into a right relationship with the living God. My mom heard this message, it sounded too good to be true, but she said, I need this forgiveness. And she went forward and she trusted in Christ and her life changed. And that's the dramatic thing about Christianity because if you come to Christ, something changes. It's not just a natural decision, it's a supernatural reality. And people who knew my, my mom before, they said, what? What's happened to you? You're different. My dad, he was thinking, what happened to the woman I was married to for six years? And he was intrigued and he started to go to church to check this out, to try and find out what had happened. My dad ended up becoming a Christian. Our whole family dynamic changed to the point my mom and dad got my sister and I and said, listen, we need to let you guys know. We're getting back together. When I was nine years old, I went to my mom and dad's wedding. I'm in the wedding album. I'm, in, I'm the little skinny Scottish uh, kid with the kilt. It's not a skirt, okay, <laughs> with the kilt on. <clears throat> and I saw as a young boy, wow, this changes people's lives. But what I realized too in my, in my teenage years is that not every family gets back together. And so much of my belief, because when I was nine, that's when I committed my life to Christ, but a lot of my belief and my faith was, was wedded to this good outcome in the short term that I could see and grasp and understand. But I thought, what if families don't get back together again? What if my family, what if my parents ever got divorced again? They never did, but what if they did? And I realized this deeper question 
It's not, does Christianity work? The deeper question is, is Christianity true? Is it true? Another popular Christian author, Oz Guinness, said, Christianity is not true because it works. It works because it's true. Christianity is not true because it works. It works because it's true. In life, you're encouraged to look for whatever works for you. Find whatever works for you. Hey, whatever works for you, just go with it. But what if it stops working? Well, try something else. (laughs) And so people are bouncing around all kinds of different things. And something works for a short time and then they move on to something else. Well, today we're going to talk about something that you can rely on, something that you can stand on, something that Jesus had to say, because he didn't just say, this is the truth. He said, I am the truth. That's why we need to trust in him. And it's critical that we recognize that. Here's another illustration of a reason why. This man here, maybe he's not familiar to you. This man is called Franz Reichelt. Anyone here heard of, heard of Franz Reichelt? Well, he developed something that uh, wouldn't have been on your Christmas list last year. In 1912, Franz Reichelt developed what he called the parachute jacket. He thought this was going to revolutionize everything. He came up with this jacket, this jacket that you could wear, and it would act like a parachute. And he was so convinced this was going to change the world that he said, listen, I'm going to demonstrate to everyone how amazing this is. And so in 1912, Franz Reichelt, he climbed up the Eiffel Tower and said, listen, I'm going to show everyone this is amazing. You guys are just going to be wowed by this. So the crowds were there. They were cheering him on. He climbed up the Eiffel Tower. He got to the edge. He looked out and he leapt off and he dropped to the earth like a stone. Was killed instantly. But he was sincere. He really believed this stuff. He did. But you know what? If you want to save your life, You've got to trust in the truth. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. To save your life, you need to trust in the truth. That's what we want to talk about today. People today, you know what? Well, I've got my own beliefs. Or you know what? Just let people believe whatever they want, you know. Or, well, it doesn't matter what people believe as long as they're sincere. Let me tell you, it matters. It means everything. Because to save your life, you need to trust in the truth. John's Gospel, chapter 14. We know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first four books of the New Testament. This is where we learn about the life of Jesus of Nazareth who lived 2,000 years ago. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were all written in the first century. They were all written within the lifetime of people who knew uh, or lived among those who knew Jesus. These are historical documents, and they tell us about the life of Jesus. And John, which was the last one uh, to be written among the, the four Gospels, again, has got many remarkable things to teach us about Jesus and who he is. In John chapter 14, Jesus says some things that are very powerful that I want to focus on this morning. Now, John's gospel, again, one of the, the really powerful themes that we see throughout this gospel in the book of John is that Jesus wasn't just some kind of good guy. He was kind of a good teacher and he helped uh, old ladies across the the road, you know, before the chariots came careering down. And, you know, this says Jesus was God. It put Jesus on a par with God. 
and showed that was why many people had a problem with Jesus because of the things that Jesus said. And right from the very beginning in John's gospel, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And as John 1 unfolds, we see this word that John is talking about is Jesus. He was there in the beginning. Nothing was created uh, that wasn't created by him. He's an uncreated being. He was there from the beginning. Jesus is put on a par with God. And we can see this uh, unfold. Also, we see that there's a, a primary message uh, when it comes to the gospel of uh, John as well. And that is that it's not enough just to, to, to know about Jesus. It's not just enough to hear about Jesus. We've got a responsibility to do something, to respond. And the response that we are required to make is to believe, to believe in him. That is the response that is required. At the end of John's gospel, it says this, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John establishes the identity of Jesus. Jesus is God, and it's him in whom we must trust. We must believe, not just enough to know about him. And in John chapter 14, we're, we're entering into a part where we're getting closer to the end of the life of Jesus. It's actually a very difficult time for the disciples. Uh, they're very troubled by things that they are seeing, by things that Jesus is saying. And so the disciples are troubled. Uh, Jesus himself can see that the cross is on the horizon and he's starting to feel the weight on his shoulders about the fact that he's going to bear the sin of the world on his shoulders. And so these things are happening. Uh, Jesus is talking to the disciples. He's saying, listen, I'm going to go somewhere and I'm sorry for the first time. You guys can't go with me. And he says, you know what? One of you is going to deny me. And he says, Peter's going to deny him three times. And so we have this, this conversation with Jesus and the disciples and the disciples are troubled. They're worried, they're concerned. Well, what does Jesus say to respond? Well, listen to these words from John chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And I want to key in on this verse 6 today where Jesus said, I am the way the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus spoke these words to comfort his disciples who were troubled. If you're troubled this morning by circumstances, maybe people are aware of, maybe people are unaware of, Jesus wants to say something to you today. In this life, you will be troubled. You will face trouble. But you can trust in me because I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. 
to come alongside you. The first thing is Jesus uh, is the way. This word, the way, it could... Um, it can mean uh, the way that you travel in terms of the word that's used in this passage, but it could also mean the way of life that you live. And when Jesus said, I am the way, he said, listen, you want to know the right way to live your life? I can show you the way. I am the way that you live your life for today that's going to take care of tomorrow. And the challenge is that we have different religions teaching well, that's not the way, this is the way. And they may point in other directions. And so we can see this idea that uh, we've got different religions pointing different ways to the point people say, well, what is the right way? And is there a right way? Do we just choose whatever way? Well, we know when it comes to any kind of uh, direction we're going to take, if you want to get somewhere, you've got to go in the right direction or you're not going to end up in the right place. And as we look at different religions, I want to touch on a couple of things this morning because sometimes people say, well, religions, you know what? They're all effectively the same. You know, at the end of the day, peel away the stuff. You know, at the end of the day, they're kind of the same. Well, the person who says this only demonstrates one thing. They know nothing about all these religions because they point in completely different directions. They are not going in the same place. And one of the uh, major religions of today, certainly, uh, is the religion of Islam. Now, Islam, uh, I went with, with uh, your pastor as well, um, with H, to the Muhammad Ali Museum, which was fascinating, very interesting. And reading a number of different quotes and things too about his life and uh, when he uh, got involved in Islam as well, just reading some of these quotes and his desires to do good things in order to get where he needed to go. And that's one of the very clear uh, ideas about Islam in terms of doing the right things to try and get where we need to go. There's a book called The Torn Veil, which tells the, the life story of one woman in Pakistan who was raised Muslim, but who converted to Christianity. And that's a very dangerous thing to do, particularly in that country. It could bring about a death sentence and it brought great sacrifice into her life, but she made a conversion out of Islam into Christianity. And in her book, The Torn Veil, she recalls a conversation that she had with her father that helps us understand more about this dynamic within Islam about trying your best to be as good as you can be to get where you need to go. Listen to this. Her father asked the question, does Allah know all the actions you do on earth? She responded, Yes, Allah knows all the actions I do on earth, both good and bad. He even knows my secret thoughts. What has Allah done for you? Allah has created me in all the world. He loves and cherishes me. He will reward me in heaven for all my good actions and punish me in hell for all my evil deeds. How can you win the love of Allah? I can win the love of Allah by complete submission to his will and obedience to his commands. I can win the love of Allah by being a good person, by living the way he would want me to, to try and win his favor. And so as a Muslim, she had a list of ingredients. She had a ladder she needed to climb to try and get where she needed to go. Now within Islam, you try your best. There are various things you need to try and do in your life and you don't know if you've done enough until the day you die when they weigh the scales and you have to hope the scales weigh in your favor. But you won't know until the day you die if you've done enough. There's no assurance. But you have to do your best. But you could ask the question, this is a God who knows everything, a holy God who knows our deepest thoughts. What chance have I got to be good enough for him? 
but people strive and they do their best. You know, one of the key distinctions between Islam and we see it in other religions as well, that other religions, uh, what they say is, listen, there is a God up there and it's our job to become lovable, to be loved by God. And we've got to do our best, be as faithful as we can, try everything that we can do so that we can be loved by God. You know what's incredible about Christianity is that God loves us when we're unlovable. God loves us when we're unlovable. The message of Jesus Christ is not that you become lovable to be loved by God. It's that God loves us when we're unlovable. Why is there hope in Christianity? Because it's not about what we can do for God. It's about what God has done for us. Radically different, radically, a radically different approach to um, dealing with this same kind of problem. Again, this idea. I remember I was speaking at an event in Scotland and uh, at this event afterwards, this was in Edinburgh during the Edinburgh Festival. Thousands of, hundreds of thousands of people go to Edinburgh at this time. And I was speaking at this kind of coffee shop outreach event with a church right in the city centre of Edinburgh. And afterwards, I'd, I'd shared the gospel. One guy came up to speak to me. His name was Norman. And Norman came up to speak to me. And he was an older gentleman. And he had difficulty speaking because his voice is very, very quiet and a little bit raspy. He'd had a surgery on his throat. And when, in order to speak to me, he had to press on this thing on his throat to try and speak to me. And he said, Alec, you know, I, I've been uh, kind of challenged by what you've said. But you know what? I just think, you know, there's, there's some things I need to do first in my life to kind of get sorted out in order to really respond to what God's saying. And I said, Norman, I hear you. You know, I hear you. And I kind of understand, you know, where you're coming from. But can I tell you about another friend of mine? This other friend of mine, I was uh, with him. He went to visit this church. And my friend of mine wasn't a Christian, but he was quite close to Christianity. And I said to him the night before, I said, listen, can I ask you, where do you stand when it comes to Christian things? He said, well, you know, it's just like there's a few things I've got to take care of in my life first. It's almost like there's a corner I've got to go around. And if I can deal with this stuff, then I might be ready. And I thought, okay. So the next day we went to church and we were having a conversation. This one guy heard the same story as my friend shared it. And he said, can I say something to you? I said, sure. He said, you don't get clean to get into the shower. You get in the shower to get clean. You don't get clean to get into the shower. You get in the shower to get clean. As simple as that, the penny dropped that night, my friend committed his life to Christ because he realized you don't get your life cleaned up to come to God. You come to God to get your life cleaned up. The great message of Christianity, you come as you are. That's why there's hope for all of us. Imagine you could get your life cleaned up without God. Well, why come to God? You've already got your life cleaned up. You don't get clean to get into the shower you get in the shower to get clean. I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe there's some here that are not Christians. Or maybe you've kind of bought into this idea. You know, you've got to get your life straightened out, get things squared away in order to maybe think more about what you need to do with this challenge, this message about Jesus reaching out to you with his hand open. Well, what he wants to say to you this morning is, you don't get your life cleaned up to come to me. You come to me so I can get to work in your life. Are you willing? Are you willing? I'm waiting if you are. So this idea 
uh, about Islam. Um, also, we could uh, look at um, the area of, of Buddhism, for example, as well. Buddhism, which tries to tackle some of life's fundamental questions, um, encourages people to pursue a path of peace, but it does raise a number of questions. Uh, I'm connected uh, as HS with a good friendship with, with a guy called Josh McDowell. Some of you may have heard of Josh. Another guy called Ravi Zacharias, who's a terrific guy who, who communicates and articulates the Christian faith in very hostile settings very often. And Ravi's from India, now he's based in, in America, travels around the world. And he wrote a small book called The Lotus and the Cross. And in this book, he creates a fictional conversation between Jesus and Buddha just to help kind of pull out some of the differences between Buddhism and Christianity. And in this fictional conversation, uh, Jesus asks Buddha this question. You told them there is no God. Then you told them there is no self. You also told them there is no one to pray to. You told them there is no one to fear. You told them everything is only within themselves, even though those selves do not exist. You instructed them that their good deeds have to outweigh their bad deeds. You carved into their consciousness a huge debt. You gave them scores of rules to live by. You told them all desire is to be cut off. You told them that you would cease to be. And when they have paid, they will cease to be. How can all this bring peace? There are so many contradictions between this worldview. The idea about saving yourself when those selves don't even exist. Now, some Buddhists might say, well, listen, it doesn't really matter. You know, we, we don't have a problem with that. But they don't live like that. Those selves that do not exist still look both ways before they cross the road. They still live in the real world. And the Bible teaches that we live in a real world with a, a real God who wants a real relationship, a personal relationship with us. And so the, the Christian worldview says, listen, the goal in life is not to cut off all desire. Some desires are good. It's not to bring things into balance. We've got to expand the good at the expense of the bad. Uh, and also our goal is not to uh, lose ourselves, but to find ourselves. It's not to empty our minds. It's to fill our minds with the knowledge of the truth. Very different ways of dealing with some of the problems that we have with the Christian worldview helps us make sense of some of these things that we wrestle with. Another one, uh, in relation to uh, Hinduism, uh, a man who was a former Hindu, uh, trained to be a yogi, this man was very high up within that religious tradition, eventually became a Christian, and wrestled with some of the difficulties of the outcomes of that worldview. Listen to what he wrote in a book that he had written. More than a million people eke out a pitiful existence in the streets of Calcutta without even a mud hut to call home. To live and die in such wretched, abject misery, and yet to be told that you are God and only need to realize it, and to be told that the running sores on your body, the gnawing hunger in your stomach, and the deeper emptiness in your soul are only maya and illusion, could there be a more diabolical deception? India is a colorful country. I visited there. There are many wonderful people there. But this whole idea about karma, this idea about karma in the West is kind of cool. I live in California. People are like, yeah, karma's cool. You know, do some stuff, build up some good karma. And I want to say to people, if you travel to a, a country where this idea about karma and reincarnation are very ingrained into the culture, because it's not pretty, it's not pretty. You've got people who are in the lowest rung of the ladder. They're living lives of abject poverty. 
and you don't help them. Why? Because they're paying off something they've done in a previous life. And if you help them, you're not helping them. They need to be able to pay this off. Now, you can give them something, not for their benefit, for your own benefit, to build up good things for yourself. And so you see people in the streets and the gutters of Calcutta who are left. They are untouchable. No wonder the Christian message has thrived among some of these communities where people who are told that they're nothing, their lives are just, uh, just worthless, they need to just pay this, price, uh, pay this price and hope for something better next time, hear this other message, that God made them. Their lives are special. They're precious. They're valuable. God loves them enough to send his son to die for them, and he wants them to know him. He wants to live in a relationship with them. He's got a plan and a purpose for them. What a message of hope for people in those situations. The Christian message, again, not every worldview, every religion teaches the same things. Uh, another man uh, who grew up in India has talked about the positive benefits that Christianity brings to a particular culture. Uh, he wrote a book, this one man wrote a book uh, called The Book That Made Your World. Listen to this, a man from India who's talking to people in the West. Countless universities and hospitals owe their existence to those who looked at the world from a biblical perspective, believing that the world's problems were real and they needed to do something about it. Christianity is not a matter of standing back and telling people to look within. Christianity calls us to come alongside in the material world and help those less fortunate than ourselves. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way for life now and for the life to come. Jesus also said, I am the truth. I am the truth. We spoke more about this yesterday uh, in one of the sessions that we we're looking at yesterday about the importance of the truth of Christianity. And again, that embodies this message. To save your life, you need to trust in the truth. You need to trust in the truth. And if something is true about the world, it is true about the world. We can't make something true that is not true just because we want it to be true, and we cannot make something not true that is true just because we don't like it. Truth is truth. Now, for example, I could say to you today, I could say, you know, um, in terms of where we are today, I could ask who believes we're in Daylight Church in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm sure every hand would go up. But imagine there were some people here that said, well, I don't really believe that. I'm not feeling the kind of Louisville, Kentucky thing today. And what if there was enough people that somehow were able to generate enthusiasm where we saw, remarkably so, the whole tide start to turn, where more people in this room start to say, well, that person is pretty respectable, you know, uh, you know, maybe that's right. And so eventually, what if we took a vote and then people said, I don't believe it anymore. We're still in Louisville, Kentucky. We've not gone anywhere. We're still here. There's this idea about truth, that truth changes according to what's popular or unpopular, what people believe or don't believe, this kind of idea. And yet that is not the case. What's true is true. And so it doesn't just change. And we sometimes see this in the context of belief in God. I've heard people say, well, you know what? Belief in God's not as popular as it used to be. As if God popped out of existence. 
And poor God was kind of thinking, this is great, you know, I'm really popular, people believe in me. And then suddenly God was getting worried because, oh no, people are not believing me in me, in me anymore. My kids watched a movie, it's one of the, it's a follow-up to Peter Pan, Return to Neverland, I think it's called. And in the story, you've got Tinkerbell, the little fairy, if you're familiar with the Peter Pan story. And Tinkerbell is having issues and problems because her little light is going out because uh, the girl in the story doesn't believe in fairies. And because she doesn't believe, she's losing her power. And so she's saying, you know what? Oh, please kind of believe in me. And all the rest characters are like, listen, you've got to believe in Tinkerbell. Her light is going out, you know? And Tinkerbell's like, please believe in me, you know? And eventually she does believe in her. She's like, oh, great, I'm back to life again. And sometimes people see God in the same kind of way. It's like God's saying, please believe in me because I'm not as popular, you know? My little light's going out. What kind of God is that? That is not the God of the Bible. Almighty God doesn't depend on us, doesn't depend on popularity. He is and has always been. He's going nowhere. Doesn't matter what people say. We can't make God not exist by not believing in him. But similarly, we can't make God exist by just believing in him. If there is no God, but we really, really want God to exist, he wouldn't pop into existence. But the Bible says in the beginning, God, God has always been. He's going nowhere and we can stand on that truth. Okay, let me quickly switch to um, this, uh, start to, to tie this up a little bit as well. Jesus is the life. Um, and again, the great thing uh, about Christianity is that it's not fire insurance, you know, I grew up sometimes with people with that, the mentality like, you know what, I'd like to be a Christian just so I can tick the box, I can file it away, I can get on with my life, you know, my life's over, I can, can produce my get out of hell free card. You know, there we go, yeah, I signed that a number of years ago, you know, so I'm okay. This kind of idea. And some people live their life that way, they view it that way. But Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. If you come to Christ, it starts today. It's not something you file away. You start living today in a relationship with God that changes everything. Jesus is the key to both. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, some people will hear that and they'll say, well, listen, I've got a bit of an issue with that. That kind of narrow focus. <laughs> what do you mean Jesus is the, the only way? I remember I was speaking um, and working with some students down in Panama. And as I was down in Panama working with these students, uh, we were staying at this place on this island. It was a youth hostel, but it was a beautiful setting in this, uh, this little island down in Panama. And as we were there, we'd been out for the day. We came back to the place where we were staying. And as the, the boat pulled in, there were some big uh, boats uh, moored alongside this, this jetty. And as the students were getting off and walking past one of the, the boats, I saw them talking to this one guy. And I saw him from afar and he was standing there. He had a glass of wine in one hand. He had a cigar or a cigarette in the other. There was music coming from his boat and he was just smiling and he was chit-chatting with the students. And as I walked up, he saw me and he said, oh, you, you're the teacher this week, are you? I was like, yeah, yeah I'm doing some teaching. He said, oh, what are you teaching them? I said, well, I'm, I'm teaching them about the meaning of life. I said, but you've probably figured that one, out, that one out already, right? He said, oh yeah, I've got that one down. <laughs> so I stopped, talked to this man, his name was Joe. 
So Joe and I started to talk and Joe said, Alec, you know, here's the thing. I think there's many different roads we can choose. We can choose different roads to get where we need to go. And I said, Joe, you know what? I hear that a lot. I can understand that. You know, and maybe I've said it myself before in the past. I said, Joe, but here's the thing. If you um, have a serious physical problem, if you've got a lump or a bump that suddenly surprised you and doesn't belong there and you start to get concerned about this, it's not that you're just going to say, well, you know what? Maybe I've got a good feeling about this. Or if you talk to a good friend and says, you know what? <laughs> I've got a good feeling about this. I think you're going to be fine. You're going to say, well, thanks for the, the suggestion, but I really need to speak to the right person who can accurately diagnose the problem and prescribe the right solution. If something happens that troubles us, if you've got a serious physical problem, I said, Joe, I said, you understand, right, that you need to talk to the right person. I said, Joe, why is it then that when people move out of the physical realm into the spiritual realm, that everything gets kind of all fuzzy? Yeah, man, believe whatever you want. Why don't we do that in the physical realm? I said, for me, I just want to be consistent. When it comes to physical things, if there's a serious problem, I need to talk to the right person who can accurately diagnose the problem, prescribe the right solution. I said, Joe, I want to be consistent because in the spiritual realm, if there's a serious problem, I need to find the right person who can accurately diagnose the problem, prescribe the right solution. I said, I just want to be consistent living in both realms. Now, why do people get so fuzzy in the spiritual when they don't live like that in the physical? Well, I think a number of reasons. I think some people maybe don't even think the spiritual realm is even real. So it doesn't matter. Because in the physical realm, if you don't really have a problem, you could go to the doctor and say, doctor, I really think, you know, that, uh, you know, this arm's falling off. You know, and he might say, there's no problem. It's like, yeah, but I think if I do star jumps every morning, it's going to help. The doctor will be like, yeah, fine, off you go. Because there's no problem. It doesn't matter. But if there's a serious physical problem, we need the right solution. Well, let's be clear. The Bible says we have a serious spiritual problem. And it's not enough to do whatever we feel. It's not enough just to go with the recommendation of a friend who's got a feeling one way or another. We need to find the right solution. We need to talk to the right person who can accurately diagnose the problem and prescribe the right solution. Jesus said, I am that solution. I shared this with Joe in Panama, and as we talked and shared, uh, talking with him, I realized as time was getting on, I needed to get ready to go. And I said, Joe, you know, I'm going to have to go. It's been lovely meeting you. I've enjoyed the opportunity to share with you. I said, but um, before I go, can I pray for you? He said, hey, we'll pray for each other. So I put my hand on his shoulder and I started to pray. And I knew God was working as I was praying. And I prayed for him and I opened my eyes and I looked at him and he looked at me and he said, nothing. Then he just said, thank you. Thank you. One of the things I talked about yesterday is that we have a responsibility to tell people about Jesus, about what he said, about how he lived, his life, his death, his resurrection. We have a responsibility to be available to him so that he lives in us and that he shines through us and people look at our lives and it gets their attention. And as we're preparing to share with people, we've got to be praying for people 
because what we say on the outside will mean nothing on the inside unless God is doing a deeper work. But God says we're responsible to share, to share. And what I love about this church is that we have this attitude that I can see that people are sharing because they care, because they care for broken people living in this broken world. And when we see ourselves, there's nothing special. But people have been saved by God's grace. What a gift, what a message of hope that we can bring to others. So again, the message that Jesus brings to this world is very simple. Is that there's a good God who created a good world with good people. But those people, the Bible said, said, God, thanks, but no thanks. And at that point, people became separated from God. And from that day on, the Bible said, people weren't born into this condition. They're born into this condition. You're born broken. You're born separated from God. And life is your opportunity to find your way back to God, to be reconciled to him, be reconnected to him. But there's a problem. There's nothing you can do to reach back up to God. Well, Alec, I'm sure there's something. There's nothing. What if I really, really, nothing. I'm sure you, nothing. You know the good news of the gospel? We couldn't reach up to God. God said, that's okay. You can't reach up to me. I am gonna reach down to you. I'm gonna come within reach. I'm gonna cross this divide. I'm gonna build a bridge that makes this salvation available to you. So what is a Christian? Someone who becomes a good person? No. Someone who comes as they are to Jesus and says, Jesus, you know what? <laughs> I don't deserve to be with God forever. But if you're telling me that you love me so much that you've come into this world, that you've paid for all this stuff that should separate me from God, and you're reaching out with your hand and saying, listen, I love you. I died for you. I came back to life. I've conquered death. You can be with me forever if you'll humble yourself and trust in me. Those people who say, listen, I can't, but God can. It's not about what I can do for God. It's what God has done for me. God, I don't want to go my way anymore. Would you forgive me? Would you welcome me back into your family? You know what the Bible says at that point? This happens. And when you're reconnected to God, the Bible says God will never let you go. This morning, you're in this relationship or you're still in this separated condition. I would encourage you this morning, if you're in this relationship, say, God, you know what? This is good news. This is a message of hope in a world that has no hope. I'm not sure I'm qualified to share it with other people, but you know what? I am available. Would you use me? God says, hey, now we can get to work. Or you're sitting here this morning and you say, you know what, Alec? I'm still here. I want you to know that today can be the first day of the rest of your life. Today could be the day where you respond to what God is saying and doing. You can trust in him.